We're now going to talk about another important and somewhat complicated federal power, and that is the power provided under Section 9127 of the Constitution Act 1867, criminal law to the federal government. As we've mentioned earlier, the fact that Canada has a national criminal law is different from what the United States has chosen and what from some other federal systems have chosen. In Australia, for example, also criminal law is primarily done by the individual provinces, not by the federal government. But in Canada, there is one criminal code and it is a federal piece of legislation. However, it's not only the criminal code that falls under Section 9127. It's not only the criminal code that is upheld as valid criminal law. And of course, simply because something is placed within the criminal code doesn't necessarily mean it's valid federal law. You couldn't just place any law within the criminal code and say it's criminal law. Rather, the court has to look at what is in fact being regulated and see if it is in federal jurisdiction. There's a bit of a history as to how the criminal law power has been interpreted through the years that's of some interest. And initially, the definition was that the criminal law power covers anything that by its very nature, i.e. traditionally, belongs to criminal jurisprudence. So this was an idea that there are things which are well-known to be part of criminal law, and we are going to say that's the scope of the criminal law power. This would tend to support a narrow criminal law power. This would also support a frozen-in-time criminal law, things that are by their very nature and traditionally criminal would be the limit of the power. This approach gave way to a different tactic adopted eventually by the Privy Council, which focused solely on form, the form of the legislation. It wasn't about whether the subject matter was traditionally criminal. The court merely looked at whether the legislation took a form of a prohibition backed with a penal sanction. This results in a very broad criminal law power. And indeed, you can fit a whole lot of legislation within that form of a prohibition coupled with a sanction. This then was too broad. So we have a, a bit of a Goldilocks problem. Starts off too narrow, what is traditionally criminal. Then it goes too broad. If you prohibit something and you back up that prohibition with a penal sanction, that's criminal. That's too broad. The court has landed at the Goldilocks solution somewhere in between the original traditional criminal definition the next prohibition with a penal sanction, and instead has said, okay, we're going to kind of combine the two, and we're going to look for the form, but we're also going to look for the purpose. The court has said we're going to need a prohibition coupled with a penalty for a criminal law purpose. So that's the formula you want to think. Prohibition with a penalty for a criminal law purpose. And the case we have on this is the RJR McDonald's. And this is a case concerning the Tobacco Products Control Act, which prohibited advertising and promotion of tobacco products unless the package included prescribed unattributed health warnings and a list of the toxic constituents of the tobacco smoke. 
So if anybody smokes, you've seen these, or even if you don't smoke, you've probably seen these uh, labels on Canadian cigarettes, and they're now quite graphic. They have pictures of diseased gums and people attached to respirators on you know, emphysema. And we're going to come back to this case when we talk about freedom of expression. But the first question the court had to deal with was, is this valid criminal law to require uh, these types of unattributed warnings and to prohibit advertising and promotion of tobacco? And the court had to get into the fundamental nature of the criminal power under Section 9127. And they said, look, this is a plenary, meaning broad power. And the main limitation is that you have to show a valid criminal law purpose. This means that you have to look at the evil to which the law is directed. What is the evil to which the law in this case was directed? Well, the court said protecting public health from the effects of tobacco consumption. Lafare, Justice Lafare says, look, tobacco kills. Is that a valid criminal law purpose? Is protection of health a valid criminal law purpose? And the court says, yes, it is a valid criminal law purpose. Well, does that mean that health is exclusively in federal jurisdiction? No. It means that the federal government can pass criminal law in relation to health by legislating in relation to health with a prohibition backed with a penalty. So you use the form and you have a valid criminal law purpose, then you have a valid exercise of the criminal law power. This still leaves provincial jurisdiction over health, as we talked about in relation to the Insight case, broad provincial jurisdiction over health. And indeed, most health matters are regulated provincially as property and civil rights or matters of a local and private nature or under the provincial power over hospitals. So this criminal law power, you want to think, as long as you take the form and you have that valid criminal law purpose, it will allow the federal government to legislate in relation to a subject matter, even if that subject matter is otherwise provincial. The criminal law power is the explanation for quite a bit of the overlapping legislation that we see and have to deal with through paramountcy when there's a conflict. Again, you want to remember that when you hear about or think about that idea that the same subject matter, in this case health, may be regulated both federally and provincially, provincially generally, but federally if done under the criminal law power, this is when the term double aspect doctrine applies. The double aspect doctrine describes that outcome where the same matter is in one sense federal and in one sense provincial. So going back to the RJR case, the court also dealt with the question of whether this was a colorable use of the criminal law power. And colorability, you'll remember, is when the legislature is purporting to, try, to be trying to do one thing, but is in fact trying to do something else. And we have the examples of the abortion regulations that are hidden as rules respecting the width of hallways in hospitals. And so the tobacco manufacturer said, this is colorable. You're just trying to regulate our industry and you're trying to regulate a matter within provincial jurisdiction, the sale of goods within the province. 
and advertising and packaging under the guise of criminal law, but this isn't really criminal law. It's not really what you're getting at. You're just getting at the sale of, of goods and you're getting at general issues of healthcare. And the court rejected that. They said, no, this is not colorable. The federal government was not trying to regulate the tobacco, the tobacco industry per se. And if they were, they would have dealt with all aspects of the industry, pricing, labor relations, etc. And then the court dealt with another interesting question, which is, well, if you are trying to get at the health consequences, why don't you do the logical thing and just make smoking illegal? Why don't you just prohibit this thing if it's so dangerous? And the court said, no, they could have. Under the criminal law power, you can ban something, prohibit it with a penalty in order to uphold a health purpose. Indeed, many illicit drugs are banned under that justification, you know, whether you think that's a good idea or not. But just because a legislature doesn't choose to take the most extreme step available to it doesn't mean the court will stop them from taking lesser steps. Just because we could have gone all the way to ban it, the court says, that doesn't mean that taking a lesser step of just limiting advertising and ensuring that there's warning labels will be outside of jurisdiction. And then finally, the tobacco company said, well, hold on, this can't really be criminal law because there's a whole bunch of exceptions. And indeed, on the tobacco advertising, imported publications were exempt from the ban on tobacco advertising. So if you get a Canadian magazine, Maclean's is a famous Canadian magazine that covers news and politics. Well, that magazine couldn't have tobacco ads in it. However, if you imported a copy of The Economist, say, another famous magazine that covers news and politics, that ad, that, that magazine could have a big ad for camel cigarettes on the back cover. And the court said that's not fatal either. Criminal law can have exceptions. It is up to the parliament to decide how far it wants to go in exercising a criminal law power. And simply because you have an exception to a general prohibition does not change the fundamental nature of the regulation or legislation as criminal. So the court upheld the constitutionality of this tobacco regulation on the grounds that it fell within the federal power over criminal law. So the big takeaways you want to have at this point, you want to think, okay, criminal law requires this form of a prohibition coupled with a penalty, and it requires a valid criminal law purpose. And one of those valid criminal law purposes is health. And it doesn't matter if the legislature has not fully banned something, and it doesn't matter if it set out certain exceptions to the prohibition, so long as at its core, the legislation has that prohibition with a penalty for a public purpose, it can fall under the criminal law power. There's a, a dissent uh, from some excellent justices, Justice Major and Justice Sapinka, and they said that this is not valid criminal law. They said this went too far. They said that the regulation on advertising was too far removed from the underlying public health issue. They said that the ban on tobacco advertising was not a traditional use of the criminal law power. And they noticed that foreign publications are 65% of the market. So most magazines sold in Canada won't be caught by this. 
That's a dissent, though. They, they didn't carry the day. And the RJR McDonald case became an important case for recognizing the role that criminal law can play in allowing the federal government to regulate things that had earlier been thought to be provincial in nature. And we'll see that expanded considerably in the Hydro-Quebec case. Here you had federal legislation, the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, a very detailed statutory scheme regulating a broad array of toxic substances. Part two of that act deals with identification of substances that can pose a risk to human life and health. And then section 34 authorizes passage of very detailed regulations regarding substances on this list of toxic substances. So if the ministers of environment and health believe that something requires immediate action, they can issue an interim order under section 35 of that act prohibiting the release of that substance. And failure to comply with a regulation detailing a toxic substance or an order prohibiting a substance is an offense under the act and can be punishable by imprisonment. So you have Hydro-Quebec is accused of dumping PCBs, a harmful chemical, contrary to an interim order under Section 35. And Hydro-Quebec says, look, this is ultra-virus. This, this question of protecting the environment, that's not in federal jurisdiction. That's a provincial matter. That's property and civil rights. And federal government says, well, we're going to rely on the criminal power. They also relied on the, the peace order and good government power we discussed at the outset. And the court said, well, is this a valid exercise of the criminal law power? And the court said, yeah, pollution is definitely an evil that can be targeted through 9127. It can be a purpose. It can be a criminal law purpose to target pollution. The court goes on and says, the purpose of criminal law is to protect our fundamental values. And protecting the environment has become a fundamental value of our society. That doesn't mean that the provinces can't also regulate the environment. Rather, the two levels of government can work together to regulate the environment. Now, the dissent, there's a strong dissent in this case, which says, hold on, sure, maybe there could be some room for criminal law, but what you have here is a complex regulatory scheme. You don't have, this doesn't look like criminal law to me. And the, the dissent also notes that the crime here is effectively created at the discretion of the minister under the regulatory power. And the area of activity that we're dealing with, discharge of all these substances, is extremely broad. And they say that this is something that was provincial and, and is essentially being crowded out from the provinces by this grab of power by the federal government. But again, that dissent doesn't carry the day. The majority says, look, there are exceptions. We've already said that exceptions can be allowed. And if you have a prohibition with a penalty and you put some exceptions in there, it may start looking like a regulatory scheme. You know, you cannot dump toxic substances as defined in this list, except insofar as this, 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 and this are, are satisfied. That may start looking like a regulatory scheme, but at its heart, it's a prohibition on dumping toxic substances coupled with a penalty, potential imprisonment or fines, and it's done for a valid criminal law purpose, protection of the environment. And so what you want to take away from this case is that 
For one, protection of the environment can be one of these valid purposes. But for two, as long as you have at it core this form of a prohibition with a penalty, you can enact what really looks quite a bit like a full regulatory scheme by just listing a bunch of exceptions to the prohibition. In essence, that will end up allowing you to engage in fairly significant regulation under the criminal law power. So this case was seen as a potential window for a broad array of federal legislation to be passed under the criminal law power. Clearly, we're getting far afield from what you would traditionally think of as the classic criminal code offenses when you're dealing with complex questions of industrial discharge. But there is a limit to how far you can go afield because you do have to point to a valid criminal purpose, which would ordinarily preclude just a wholesale takeover of a regulatory regime. And in the next case, we're going to look at the reference Assisted Human Reproduction Act, there's an interesting discussion and a listing of what the valid criminal purposes might be. In this case, the reference Assisted Human Reproduction is an excellent last case to look at as we complete our whirlwind through the division of powers because it recaps many of the major themes that we have seen as we've talked about the division of powers. But unfortunately, it's a very tricky decision to read because of the way the court split. So you had four judges writing on one set of reasons, another four judges writing on a different set of reasons, and then one judge agreeing with a little bit from each, more or less. So that final judgment, the single judge, Justice Cromwell, is the judgment that decides the case. He breaks the tie. However, the reasons of Madam Justice McLaughlin, Chief Justice McLaughlin, are the best explanation on the division of powers issues, and they're the ones I want to spend some time on. So what you have in this case is federal legislation that is put to a reference, and it is legislation governing a emerging issue, assisted human reproduction. It covers a variety of things. So I'm just going to go through the legislation. You don't have to know this in detail, but just so you have a sense of what was in there, what is in there. So first sections five to nine prohibit human cloning and the commercialization of human reproductive material, as well as the reproductive functions of women and men and the use of in vitro embryos without consent. So these sections five through nine are prohibitions. Sections 10 through 13, on the other hand, prohibit activities unless they're carried out in accordance with regulations made under the Act, under license and in a licensed premises. So there are some activities that are controlled. They're prohibited unless you do them in a particular way. Sections 14 to 19 set up a system of information management related to assisted reproduction. Sections 20 to 39 establish the Assisted Human Reproduction Agency of Canada. Sections 40 to 59 charge that agency with administering and enforcing the act and the regulations 
and authorize it to issue licenses for certain activities. Sections 60 and 61 provide for explicit penalties. Sections 65 to 67 authorize the making of regulations. So this is one of those statutory powers we talked about where the legislature gives the executive the power to pass regulations. And section 68 gives the governor and council a power to exempt the operation of certain provisions of this act if there are equivalent provincial laws in force that cover the field. I think we've mentioned it before, but that term governor in council that I mentioned in relation to section 68, the governor in council is the governor general acting on the advice of cabinet. So it's effectively a cabinet level decision. So you don't need to remember all the details of the legislation. It's very complex. But fundamentally, what you want to remember is there are some outright prohibitions, some conditional prohibitions, these controlled activities prohibited unless you do it exactly like this. Information management, the creation of an agency, penalties, the ability to create regulations. And then finally, this provision that allows cabinet to say, okay, it do, uh, part of this act doesn't have to apply in such and such a province because they have equivalent provincial laws in force already. So Quebec launched a reference in the Quebec Court of Appeal. And the Quebec Attorney General accepted that a few of the outright prohibitions, the prohibition on cloning, for example, was a valid criminal law, but challenged the constitutionality of the rest. And the Quebec Court of Appeal agreed that these many of the other provisions were attempts to regulate the whole sector of medical practice and research related to assisted reproduction and were ultra-virus. And ultimately, this was seen as a matter of property and civil rights in the province and in relation to health which is generally a provincial matter. So Quebec Court of Appeal hears this reference. They agree. They say this legislation is invalid. The federal government appeals to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the fundamental question is, do the impugned provisions in pith and substance fall within the federal criminal law power? Ultimately, the court concludes that some of them do and some of them don't. And in this complicated 4-4-1 split. So I'm going to go through the reasons of Chief Justice McLaughlin in some detail, because as I said at the outset, I think they provide a very good window into the proper approach to division of powers questions, even if the result that she reached wasn't agreed to by a majority of the court. At first, I want to notice something that is a bit of a tick with the Chief Justice, where she likes to have a bit of a, a flowery or, or literary start to her judgments. When I was working for her, she would ask when I was helping with judgments, she'd say, oh, we really need to spruce up this start of the judgment. This is this is not, this is, we need to grip the, the reader right at the outset. She has a bit of a, uh, a literary bent. She's actually published a novel and a memoir, both well-received since she retired from, from the court. But this one, this one cracks me up. So if you look at paragraph two, she starts off saying, 
Since time immemorial, human beings have been conceived naturally. I have no idea what she means by that. I don't know what she means by conceived naturally, but I suspect that you don't need to say since a particular time if, if she means what I think she means. But I also think it's a bit offensive. I mean, there's technology involved in some assisted human reproduction, but that doesn't make it necessarily unnatural. So this one misses the mark, but it's kind of fun when you read a Justice McLaughlin, Chief Justice McLaughlin decision to have a look at the start and try to get a bit of the senses to the, the literary flourish that she chose to add to that decision. But this foible in writing aside, the rest of the decision is really exceptionally clear and quite well written. And so you see when you get to paragraph 19, a very good summary of the pith and substance analysis. And she says, look, there are two steps to determining whether a law is valid. That's the validity analysis, characterization and classification, characterize and classify. Determine the dominant matter or pith and substance. Once the matter is characterized, the second step is to determine if it falls under a head of power assigned to the enacting body. So in so many words, that's what I've been saying over and over again in the last two lectures. And she notes that the enacting body is federal and the Attorney General of Canada relies only on a single head of power, the criminal law power set out in Section 9127. She then notes there's this disagreement on what the dominant purpose and effect of the legislative scheme is, how you properly characterize it. Canada says that the dominant purpose and effect is to prohibit practices that would undercut moral values, produce public health evils, and threaten the security of donees and person conceived by assisted reproduction. So there you see the dominant purpose, they're saying prohibit prohibition, and then they're saying moral, evil, security. These are all the types of words that would be included in this asserted characterization in order to uphold it under the criminal law power. And what you want to think here is that this articulation of this legislation, what the Attorney General of Canada says is its pith and substance, every word here in that articulation was worked over for hours by a team of lawyers, then it went through a committee, then it went up to the Minister of Justice's desk, and you know this might have gone to the Prime Minister for all you know. These decisions on how exactly you're going to articulate the pith and substance when there's a challenge to a high-profile piece of litigation are extremely carefully considered by the litigants and certainly by Canada. So that's the one option, trying to slide into criminal power by saying the dominant purpose and effect is to do a prohibition, and they don't say it, but it certainly is coupled with a penalty, on something that undercuts moral values, there's public health evils, there's security issues. The other, side, the other side, though, is the Attorney General of Quebec. And they focus mainly on the effects of the act and say that its dominant characteristic is the regulation of reproductive medicine and research. Okay, regulating medicine, that's squarely in provincial jurisdiction. So you see here the tension. Which one is the court going to accept as the right characterization? Is it prohibiting evil and promoting security? Or is it 
regulating a medical research. And she articulates this question quite clearly at paragraph 21. Here's the fundamental question. Sorry if you can hear a sad five-year-old in the background. She is getting hair washes, which is a fate worse than anything. So, sorry, I'm recording this in the evening. Anyway, so at paragraph 21, you see Chief Justice McLaughlin articulate the question before the court as deciding between these two competing characterizations. Is the Assisted Human Reproduction Act properly characterized as legislation to curtail practices that may contravene morality, create public health evils, or put the security of individuals at risk? Or should it be characterized as legislation to promote positive medical practices associated with assisted reproduction, as Quebec contends? What is this legislation about? Is it about controlling and curtailing the negative impacts associated with artificial human reproduction? Or is it about establishing statutory rules to govern the practice of medicine and research in an emerging field? How do you answer this? Well, she says at paragraph 22, you got to ask what's the purpose and effect of the legislative scheme? What, in fact, does the law do and why? So then at paragraph 23, she says, well, what, what is the dominant purpose? Is it to prohibit uh, reprehensible conduct or to regulate health. And she says at paragraph 24 in a passage I haven't highlighted that the text of the act suggests its dominant purpose is to prohibit inappropriate practices rather than to promote beneficial ones. She notes the emphasis is on preventing practices that offend values and produce this harm. And she notes then that this this is accomplished, this purpose is accomplished by imposing sanctions. And then she says in a key passage, paragraph 25, the act is essentially a series of prohibitions followed by a set of subsidiary provisions for their administration. So this is a very good characterization for Canada, for the proponent of the law's validity, because she's saying the prohibitions are a dominant descriptive feature of this act. But the Quebec position was predominantly that it was the effects of the act that strayed too far. And at paragraph 31, Chief Justice McLaughlin addresses this, and she says, turning to the effects of the act, this legislation clearly has an impact on the regulation of medical research and practice and hospital administration. So she says, look, I'm not doubting that this has an effect on these matters that are within provincial jurisdiction. But in a key passage, again, at paragraph 32, she says, the pith and substance doctrine allows either level of government to enact laws that have a substantial impact on matters outside of their jurisdiction. Just showing that there is even a substantial impact on the jurisdiction of the other level of government is not enough to make a law unconstitutional. You have to figure out the dominant effect of the law. A subsidiary impact, even a significant subsidiary impact, is not sufficient to doom the legislation's constitutionality. And Chief Justice McLaughlin says, look, viewed as a whole, the dominant effect of the act is to prohibit a number of practices which Parliament considers immoral and or which it considers a risk to health and security, not to promote the positive aspects of assisted reproduction. 
the dominant effect of the prohibitory and administrative provisions is to create a regime that will prevent or punish practices that may offend moral values, give rise to serious public health problems, and threaten the security of donors, donees, and persons not yet born. And then in the key concluding paragraph of this characterize component of her analysis, characterize and then classify, in the characterize, she concludes, she articulates the pith and substance and says, I conclude that the pith and substance of the act is properly characterized as the prohibition of negative practices associated with assisted reproduction. So once you've articulated a pith and substance, then you move on to the classification stage. Does this fall within a head of power of the enacting legislature? And as she noted at the outset, Canada relied only on a single power, Section 9127, the power over the criminal law. So Chief Justice McLaughlin reviews that. She says, there are three requirements for valid criminal law. You need a prohibition, it must be backed by a penalty, and it must have a criminal law purpose. So this is what we articulated a few times in the previous cases. And she says, look, I've already articulated that we have a prohibition backed with a penalty. But she does note there's not an absolute prohibition, but that is not a problem she makes clear. She says, in fact, there's a lot of exceptions, and indeed, a large portion of the scheme is regulatory. However, it is open to Parliament to create regulatory schemes under the criminal law power, provided they further the law's criminal purpose. And she says, the complexity of modern problems often requires a nuanced scheme with a mix of absolute prohibitions, selective prohibitions based on regulations, and supporting administrative provisions. These schemes, she says, permit flexibility, and they have repeatedly been upheld as valid criminal law. And then she cites the Hydro-Quebec case. So in essence, she's saying, look, you have a prohibition backed by a penalty at the heart of this legislative scheme. It does get pretty regulatory, but she says is necessary to give Parliament some leeway to have a lot of exceptions, specific rules, regulations that are going to deal with a lot of the matters that are falling under the criminal law power in order to allow Parliament to tackle complex modern problems. It's just not as easy as it used to be. You can't just have a few clear prohibitions. You have to leave some room for some nuance. You leave some room for regulations to be passed to respond to things as they come up, as things change. This does not doom criminal law from being upholdable under section 9127. She then makes at paragraph 38 a rather interesting comment that I think bears a bit of consideration, where she says, look, I'm gonna speak a bit more about the fact that there's these exceptions to the prohibition. And she says, you're allowed to have exceptions from a prohibition, but we should think carefully about what that means. The use of a carve-out from a prohibition, saying it's prohibited unless you do this, that simply means that a practice is not prohibited, not that it is positively allowed by the federal law. So if you have criminal law and you say, this conduct is prohibited, unless you fall in the exception of somebody who does 
X, Y, and Z. Does that mean that somebody who does X, Y, and Z is necessarily allowed to do something? Is it a positive obligation to do something or even a permit necessarily allowing them to do so? No, it simply means the federal government hasn't prohibited them. This is important for paramountcy. She notes, if a province enacts stricter regulations than the federal government, deals with these things that are not prohibited by the federal government, it would be possible to comply with both. The federal government isn't telling you to do something. It simply isn't telling you not to do something. But if the province tells you not to do something, you can comply with both by not doing that thing. The federal government isn't telling you to do it. They just aren't telling you not to. And there'd be no frustration of the federal purpose because federal criminal laws are only intend to prohibit. The federal purpose is not frustrated because what the federal government has chosen to prohibit is still being prohibited. So I think it's an interesting way in which Chief Justice McLaughlin finds comfort in the fact that seeing the criminal law power in this way means that if the province attempts to fill in the gaps on these exceptions where the federal government hasn't chosen to prohibit, it won't be barred by paramountcy from doing so. There won't be an impossibility of dual compliance because the federal government will have simply prohibited some but not all things and will not have given anybody an obligation or a permit to do those things which it has not prohibited. And furthermore, there won't be a frustration of the federal purpose because the federal purpose is to prohibit some things. It's quite a clever way to find comfort in paramountcy and to show a more limited impact on provincial jurisdiction than the Quebec government might have been arguing. So she says the form is okay. We have a prohibition backed with a penalty. We have exceptions, but that's okay. We have some regulations, but that's okay. The final missing piece, does it serve a valid criminal law purpose? And she notes the Attorney General of Canada's position is there's a broad criminal law purpose around morality, health, and security. Quebec's argument in response is that the real purpose is not criminal, but regulatory, to establish a system to regulate assisted reproduction. And she notes the history that there's been, she uses the, the nice phrase, much judicial ink has been spilled in attempting to articulate a definition of what a valid criminal law purpose is. But then at paragraph 43 in the highlighted passage, she sets out what has, since this case, been read as the leading articulation of what can constitute a valid criminal law purpose. And she says, a law's purpose must address a public concern relating to peace, order, security, morality, health, or some similar purpose. So when you're thinking of your criminal law framework, how do you classify a law as criminal under section 9127? You have your prohibition coupled with a penalty, and then you find that valid criminal law purpose, and that purpose must address a public concern relating to peace, order, security, morality, health, or some similar purpose. She then at paragraph 44 makes the, the good point that I've made as well, that whether this falls within 9127 is just a question of which level of government can enact this law. Is this something that's within the federal 
jurisdiction, because if not, it's in the provincial jurisdiction. It's not a question of can anyone pass this law because of concerns around civil liberties. That's a charter question. That's not before her. It's a good reminder of the nature of division of powers review. And oftentimes when you have legislation that is aimed at a criminal purpose such as morality, you can run into charter problems because morality, as it's been traditionally articulated in the division of powers jurisprudence, is concerned with the Christian worldview conception of morality that can be inconsistent with the multiculturalism that is protected under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So she's saying, look, we're not getting into civil liberties issues, and if you want to do a charter challenge to some of these things, I haven't said anything one way or the other on that. I'm only dealing with the division of powers. And at paragraph 48, she then applies all this to the act, and she says, upholding morality is the principal criminal law object of the act. And what she says is at stake is not just competing health schemes, but Parliament's power to enact general norms for the whole of Canada to meet the pressing moral concerns raised by the techniques of assisted reproduction. And objects of prohibiting public health evils and promoting security play supporting roles. Together, she says, these objects confirm the act serves valid criminal law purposes. And then she goes on to discuss morality a bit more in the criminal law context. And she says that criminal law may target conduct that parliament reasonably apprehends as a threat to morality. And she says, importantly, this is an important point at paragraph 50, under federalism analysis, the focus is on the importance of the moral issue, not whether there is a societal consensus on how it should be resolved. So if it's really a moral issue, Parliament will have the criminal law power to enact prohibitions coupled with penalties to get at that moral question, as long as there's a reasonable basis to expect its legislation will address a moral concern. And again, whether you're getting into a Charter of Rights and Freedoms issue, it's a whole other question. She goes on to talk a bit about what the health purpose of criminal law can be. And in paragraph 54, she summarizes that, well, in all the cases talking about health, you are dealing with human conduct that has an injurious or undesirable effect on the health of members of the public. And this is the type of conduct that she says can be criminalized by parliament under the section 9127. And I won't ask you to listen to me read them to you, but the a good summary of the criminal law purposes is given by Chief Justice McLaughlin at paragraph 61, 62, and 63, where she explains how she sees this law as concerning morality, health, and security. And she therefore concludes that the act as a whole is valid criminal legislation. An interesting thing you'll see is there's a lot of dialogue in her reasons with Justices LaBelle and Deschamps, the other four-judge consortium who would have found that the law was unconstitutional. I won't go through these in great detail, but it is interesting to see the debate and the balance. But ultimately, what she engages in is a defense of the federalism principle. And she says, I don't agree that my interpretation of criminal law is going to undo the balance of power between the federal and provincial governments. 
she's clear that she shares the concern that criminal law cannot be used to eviscerate provincial power regulating health. But she says that there's a proper role to be played for both criminal law on a federal level and provincial law. Now, of course, as I said at the outset, I, I went through the Chief Justice McLaughlin reasons because I think it's an excellent summation of federalism. However, these reasons did not carry the day. Justice Cromwell did not agree that much of the Assisted Human Reproduction Act was in fact valid federal law, and he agreed with the other four judges on a variety of the issues. So I won't get into detail as to the actual outcome of the case, because what's most important is you take away the the fundamental principles described by Chief Justice McLaughlin. But in essence, what happens is Justice Cromwell decides that much of the act exceeds provincial sorry, exceeds federal jurisdiction and intrudes on provincial jurisdiction, but he will allow some provisions to remain. Now, it was conceded that a few, it was conceded by Quebec even, that a few of the provisions were constitutional. So the human cloning prohibition, certain prohibitions on the creation of an embryo, the commercialization of reproductive functions, including the payment of money to surrogate mothers, and the purchase and sale of embryos or human reproductive material, this is all conceded to be fine. The federal government can prohibit this. And then Cromwell, Justice Cromwell, agreed with the Chief Justice McLaughlin that um, the use of in vitro embryos, if the donor hadn't given consent, this was within federal power. The, the prohibition on the removal of the use of sperm or ova from a donor under 18 years old, except for certain reasons. This was also allowed by Justice Cromwell to be upheld under the federal criminal law power. And he also upheld as valid criminal law the one of the controlled activities in Section 12, where reimbursing a donor for an expenditure incurred in the course of donating sperm or ova and a surrogate mother for an expenditure incurred in relation to her surrogacy these were upheld with the conditional prohibition. He found certain other sections were constitutionally valid because they were mechanisms to implement Section 12, the conditional prohibition that he upheld, and certain inspection powers as well as the offense-creating power and the power that allowed the governor and council to exempt provinces, but of course only to the extent it matched with the limited amount of the legislation that he allowed to go ahead as constitutional. So it's a very interesting case. It shows the tension and the different ideas that can be brought to bear. I hope you have a look at the dissenting reasons, or not dissenting reasons strictly, but the reasons of the other four judges. But I don't want you to spend too much time puzzling through this case, because the specific outcomes of this very particular and complex scheme and this complex decision are less important than understanding what this case can tell you about the criminal law broadly. And I don't take the uh, judges who didn't sign on to Chief Justice McLaughlin's opinion to disagree with her on the fundamental articulation she gave to the principles underlying pith and substance analysis, or even the application of the criminal law power. It was more a question of 
whether they agreed that those principles properly applied would allow this legislation to stand. So an interesting and useful case, no doubt. And with that, we'll conclude our whirlwind tour through the division of powers. We'll be moving on next lecture to the charter. But if some of this still feels fuzzy, I completely understand. I will be doing review classes. I will do a review specifically on this division of powers, as well as a full class review at the end, which I hope will help these ideas crystallize. But the, the main things to take away about the criminal law power are you need to have that form of a prohibition coupled with a penalty. You have to remember that some exceptions to the prohibition or even some regulations or regulatory schemes within a criminal law framework will not necessarily mean the law cannot be valid federal law. And you want to remember that you need a criminal law purpose and you want to remember the list of the valid criminal law purposes that Chief Justice McLaughlin sets out in the Assisted Human Reproduction Act reference. So on to the charter in the next class. Thank you very much.